I talk to the trees, but they don't listen to me. I talk to the stars, but they never hear me. The breeze hasn't time to stop and hear what I say. I talk to them all in vain. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, hey guys. And special guest, you know him from uh, the Globe and Mail and uh, Salon.com and uh, numerous podcast guest shots. It's <laughs> John Semley. Thank you for having me. Since you're here, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about spending the last week in the crosshairs of Canada's other foremost public intellectual, <laughs> the professor Jordan Peterson. Uh, yeah, no, I had a lot of like uh, death ready emails. I got to the point where I just started deleting them all. You read his book, right? I read his book, 12 Rules for Life. Yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those books where, I mean, for a while I was like pretty much a professionalized book critic and I read a lot of shit books, but I haven't read a lot of shit books where even 200 pages in, I haven't even learned anything accidentally. You know? Yeah. So how long was the book? It was about, I think it's about 380 pages. It's brisk, though. I kind of thought it would be like one of those, you know, 100 page, you know, large type. Sure. It's yeah. kind of like, a yeah, it's strike right. while the iron's hot. It's, it's written book. in the font of like one of those phones that you give like your elderly <laughs> grandparent. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, there's less than 90 pages of content in it just padded out with like rambling anecdote and biblical analysis. How is it structured? Is it in, is it like 12 chapters or is it little like apparatic? Is it like a, Nietzsche book where it's like little aphorisms. Yeah, there's the 12 rules. Also, each one has a little boy and a little girl in like an illustration uh, <laughs> on the opposite facing page of the chapter. And the one that I really loved is that these two kids at a museum just marveling at the Pieta, like the, the Mother Mary holding Christ in their arms as if like any kid would give a shit. But that's his point, I suppose, that any kid should give a shit about the suffering of Christ. What happened to virtue? What yeah. are some of these 12 steps? Well, 12 rules, Will. Oh, excuse me. They'll literally just like reduce to stand up straight or there's one that's don't let your child do anything that will make you hate them where the brave intellectual warrior Jordan Peterson talks about prodding his toddler uh, poking him in the chest to make him eat baby food as if it's like this victorious conquest or something mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty ludicrous well you know the- have nice friends that's another one. Oh, that's nice yeah um- Clean your room. Well, like one of the most frustrating things about watching Jordan Peterson's, you know, 15 minutes of fame is that the media, I think, is so gullible to anybody who throws around academic jargon. It's like, you know, Steve Bannon was the same way earlier this year, where just because he was sort of well read. Totally... Because he's read two books. Yeah. He's read The Prince and he's read The Art of War. And yeah. so, well, Socrates. he's read, you know, a Team of Rivals as well. <laughs> so like they totally the, bought the three that great text in the Western. Yeah. So like I was glad that your article, like there, there have been a, a deficit of articles treating him like a big dumb idiot like yeah i mean that's the thing it's like and even as a professor his audience is impressionable first second year undergrads you Mm -hmm. know and i appreciate a guy who is rangy and digressive and who sort of gets to his point in a sort of roundabout way but there's no meat on Mm -hmm. those uh, bones which is not a comment on his being vegan by the way so i tweeted your article (laughs) Um, and then I spent the next 24 hours getting yeah. all of these uh, fucking Jordan Peterson fanboys saying, I thought, really mean and hurtful things to me, I have to say. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, thanks for doing that, by the way. Call, <laughs> calling me a cock. And, yeah. uh, and there was one guy who posted a picture of me and you 
And then he posted a picture of the Revenge of the Nerds poster. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which, am I uh, Robert Carradine or what's the... I, 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 believe it or not, I've never actually seen the movie. <laughs> but, yeah, no, there's a lot of like, just the cant of the people. Like people are emailing me and being like, you anemic soy boy cuck. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, man, you got the wrong guy. Like you can say what I, you, whatever you want about like what I wrote in the article, but don't come at me about being some like 80 pound soaking wet virgin or something like that well the know? main thing they kept saying to me uh and i guess by extension to you was that i'm jealous of jordan oh I, that was the big one so, for sure so famous and I, and I summed it up to one person where it's like yes i'm definitely jealous of this person who everyone i know and everyone who i don't know but think is smart <laughs> who they think is a total fucking moron and charlatan like this is who i'm jealous of and then people would like dredge up sales for my previous book like this is a bestseller no one's bought your book i'm like jordan peterson's first book was written 20 years ago and sold like 300 copies i mean i'm, je- I'm jealous of his patreon i'll tell you that yeah no i would love to be uh, <laughs> yeah fucking... step it up michael and us come on <laughs> i'd love to be shit rich for doing literally nothing let's let's publish our amazon wish lists and just because you know what what do we have we have we have well over a thousand listeners i'm sure there's got to be one or two in there who would buy us something which of you would have the wish list that's like a cam girl style like uh, edible panties oh, and, uh, obviously a, me a sibian <laughs> You know, I think Jordan Peterson, one of the reasons he's been successful is because he kind of initially, anyway, successfully courted that, I don't know, kind of centrist dad contingent. I mean, the type of, um, you know, run-of-the-mill sort of op-ed writers whose thing is to be performatively balanced all the time. And um, I think those people are only just starting to realize, like, this guy's really playing footsies with, like, the far right. Yeah, and I mean, that idea of a kind of Freudian primal father, although I hasten to mention that the Freudian primal father was uh, mercilessly killed by his sons. But uh, (laughs) Jordan Peterson, like, you know, his his sort of basic notion that human nature justifies social hierarchies, which is essentially in our world and context patriarchy, uh, he sort of dovetails that rather frustratingly elegantly with this idea of, yeah, just being the dad you never had who was giving you the harsh advice that people are too afraid to give you, like stand up straight and tidy up your room. And that's another thing that I think, you know, the what I called the centrist dad contingent a moment ago, what I think they kind of miss is that a lot of what Peterson is peddling is just kind of an alt-right, like self-help hokum. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, if you go to his Patreon, I mean, there's I don't remember the specific title, but it's something like, you know, the soul craft course or mm-hmm. something there. He has YouTube videos where the thumbnail is just a picture of him wearing sunglasses. And it says like how to pick up women, like That's lesson awesome. one, like <laughs> eye contact or whatever. Like, I think the people that are so intent on treating him as a ser- as like a really serious public intellectual who's, you know, issued this, this great challenge to, you know, the orthodoxies and, and the sclerotic dogma of the liberal university in people's kind of eagerness to just accept that at face value, they're kind of missing what he's actually doing. Yeah, I mean, the pickup artist thing has been brought up again and again, but when you read the book and like listen to some lectures that he's done, which I force myself to do, unfortunately, to the haters who are coming at me like, no, uh, believe it or not, I have better things to do than watch 300 hours of fucking Jordan B. Peterson lectures. It's basically like Neil Strauss if he's read like Twilight of the Idols and the Book of Genesis, (laughs) (laughs) which is horrible. That'd be the worst person to ever try to pick you up at a bar. I do genuinely feel bad for a lot of these people, though. I mean, so much of their identity is wrapped up in this guy. I mean, to only have him and maybe Christopher Hitchens as well is sad. Well, I mean, it's like and people say this about Trump, too, in a different way, but it... It does appeal. It does 
speak to what is a genuine need. It's just answering that genuine need in one of the worst ways imaginable. I think there are a lot, like the MRA movement, right? There are a lot of young men who are confused, who feel like these entitlements uh, that they thought they were entitled to are being taken away from them, and they don't know how to deal with that. But I can assure you, if any of these people are listening, the way to deal with it is not by like screaming at feminists and trans people because they think that they're somehow ruining your ability to get laid. You're not getting laid because you suck and you're <laughs> awful. As they, like I sound like Jordan Peterson now. I'm like, take responsibility for yourself. Like, don't blame it well, on some leftist cabal who's trying to cock block you. You know, it's like late capitalism is like a dystopian hellscape, and it's one where and it's one where. I think everybody's str- – it's very hard to find like a thick cultural experience that's kind of rich, that has kind of any texture to it or that imbues you or imbues your life with any sense of meaning. You know, community has kind of collapsed. Pe- you know, people are precarious at work all the time. You know, there's there's just rampant social enemy and atomization. And like that's the perfect environment if you're a huckster and you mm. want to create scapegoats and things like that. But this is not the root of escape from late capitalism. Well, I take some comfort in the fact that he's not going to last very long. No. These guys never do. No. Uh, even even the durable ones like the Ann Coulters of the world mm-hmm. generally have that brief period where they're kind of red hot and then they just sort of fade into the background. It's it's easy to say that Pearson is like a dumb moron and compared to actually smart people he is, but compared to other people who his followers look up to – he is relatively a genius. Like, uh, you know, compared to Ann Coulter, yeah. I mean, I don't know. He's Stephen Hawking. Does that even make sense as a comparison? But, you know, he, you know liberal he, arts, Stephen Hawking, <laughs> sure. Yeah, the non-science Stephen Hawking. Psychology is not a science. I hasten to mention. Anyways, yeah, fuck him. We go on I mean, so I, I experienced something I kind of similar to probably what you've been experiencing a couple years ago when I wrote, you know, an article that was critical of Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens. And one of the things that really struck me was how so many of the people that got angry, I mean, you just, you get the same talking points over and over again. And it's because like, you know, the messages that a lot of these guys convey are are very like digestible, but they also have the appearance of being quite intelligent and intellectually Mm. rigorous. And what it seemed to me was a lot of them, a lot of these kind of fanboys really, and they were always men, of course, right? Like, they didn't seem to have any reference, intellectual reference points outside of the milieu of like Sam Harris, right. Richard mm-hmm. Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really was like I was attacking their entire worldview. Yeah, I mean, the worst I ever got it before this was uh, after the Charlie Hebdo shootings. I wrote, I did a thing in the Globe and a thing in the Star that was like, everyone just interpreted it as being like, oh, you're saying these guys deserve to get killed. I'm like, no, I explicitly go through pains to say that that's not what I'm saying, but sort of pushing back against this sort of new atheist idea or even this uh, notion of there being like an equal opportunity, Matt Stone, Trey Parker, South Park, like equal opportunity offense. That such a notion doesn't exist when we live in a social and historical world in which there are obvious imbalances between different groups, blah, blah, blah. I'm boring myself talking about this because it seems so apparent to me, Uh, but for other people, not so much, I guess. But I wonder, you know, it really has me wondering what the next kind of axis of the conservative culture wars is going to be because how can you get any more degenerate than this the the sort of sort of generalized claim of the alt-right is that western culture you know is in this state of moral degeneracy and this catastrophic kind of equality that's you know homogenizing everything and it's it's flattening virtue and all the kind of greatness and opulence that once existed 
But then these are the same people who've made like a cartoon frog their idol and who embrace <laughs> like, you know, and who come from literally the sewers of the internet. I mean, and, and who are inspired by the gutter of online. And I mean, I, I don't know how you like dialectically, what's the next well, stage well, for them, of this? The, for know? I mean, at least Peterson is affecting kids looking at the Pieta, you know, like for a lot of these people, the pinnacle of Western culture is somehow like hentai 4chan. But, but, but Peterson, Peterson also is doing like, you know, like there he has YouTube videos that are called like the metaphysics of Pepe and stuff. And he rants about, he just, he does what all these conservative culture warriors from like Ben Shapiro on what they all do, where they complain in this incredibly self-serious way about like frozen or right. beauty and the beast or actually no they like beauty and the beast uh but these totally like innocuous cultural commodities they see as this these like mortal threats to western civilization you know some guy who's like uh has like machiavelli or like you know some like greek you know ancient solzhenitsyn they all co-op now which is the fucking worst (laughs) they have someone like that as their avatar and then all their tweets are like complaining about a disney movie or something (laughs) i'm getting like guys telling me to go fuck myself and it's like at solzhenitsyn's ghost i'm like fuck (laughs) man like i had to throw my copy of the gulag archipelago i think that that accounts tweeted me actually seems like he has a lot of free time on his hands (laughs) maybe he's in the gulag in one of your lectures you said the film frozen was garbage i don't think i said garbage i think i said reprehensible propaganda, which I believe it was. Can you elaborate on your thoughts on the film? I can't because I haven't seen it recently enough to... um, The only thing I can say is that I left the film with a strong sense that it was produced for ideological reasons and it was produced as a sort of anti-Sleeping Beauty and I felt that that was entirely inappropriate because it wasn't a genuine artistic attempt, it was an ideological statement. I actually really liked Moana. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. I thought it was that, I like that, you know, that little girl in the movie allied herself with this very, very powerful, but rather uncivilized masculine force. And I thought they got the archetypal balance in that film really quite, really quite nicely. So uh, I thought it was quite beautifully done. So I liked Moana quite a bit. Let me ask you a question, Chris. Would you be surprised if I told you that the Navy has credited you with over 160 kills? Do you ever think that you might have seen things or done some things over there that you wish you hadn't? Oh, that's not me, no. What's not you? I'm willing to meet my creator and answer for every shot that I took. I'll pick it up. Drop it. So uh, this week we watched uh, Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, the biggest film of 2015, I believe. And the top grossing war film of all time, unadjusted for inflation. And of course, (laughs) the top grossing film, I think, adjusted for inflation as well, of American icon Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. And American icon Chris Kyle. (laughs) Yes, rest in peace. Um, He's firing at people up in heaven right now. So I had been carrying around a lot of antipathy towards this movie ever since I saw it on its opening weekend. Because when it came out, I suppose so much of my reaction to the movie was really a reaction to the reception of the movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like the function that it was filling in society was that it was sort of telling Americans what they wanted to hear about the Iraq war, which is that, okay, we lost the war, but we lost it because these people are ultimately uncivilizable. But more importantly, we've still got the greatest soldiers in the world. We've still got this guy who can 
fire at people from six miles away and get them. But also, not only that, like, uh, the Islamic world is barbaric in Kyle's, the real-life Kyle's own terms, and uncivilizable, but that people lost the will to fight. I mean, you see uh, Chris Kyle's brother in the film, and he's like, I gotta get out of here. Like, this place is too fucked up. I can't be here. And he, he sees these people, or he sees the sort of, like, wounded veterans at first, and, like, he almost is pitying of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's this idea that we're fighting a war over there, but no one at home cares about the war enough and the soldiers are like losing their spirit. Yeah, I liked it better this time around because I think Clint Eastwood is a smarter and more thoughtful filmmaker than that. Like, if you want to see a really bad version of this, it's Michael Bay's 13 Hours. Right. That's the jingoistic flag waving thing. Uh, but I mean, I'm still. I don't know. I, I still have mixed feelings about this movie. I, I still think it has a lot of problems. I think it's still a fundamentally conservative film. I mean, I've gone back and forth a couple times now. When I first saw it, I actually thought that it was like pretty textured, that it was showing this, like Kyle is this sort of condensed, tightly wound person who couldn't conceive of a life outside of combat, not unlike Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker, I suppose. I think it does justice to his emptiness as a person exactly. his, his dimness his lack of and he's, kind of, and he's kind of just like people will say oh thank you so much You're like oh yes ma'am okay thank you ma'am like he has yeah. no idea how to engage with the world he's, he says yes sir all the time <laughs> yeah yeah like getting, a, who he's getting an to. oil change or like getting yeah. a beer and i think that like it did sort of show the way in which this war was taking its toll on people and that the character of Kyle, the problem with the character, which like a major criticism of the movie is the character is totally at odds with the real historical personage of Chris Kyle. Uh, but that the character, the problem with him is that he wasn't conflicted and textured enough as a person that he still saw in this binary of good versus evil. And that's what animated him. And ultimately it was that sort of like narrow thinking that was eating away at him. That's what I saw when I saw it the first time. When I've gone back and seen it, I've sort of softened a bit. I think it's a bit more conservative than I initially thought. But the other thing, and I'm sure you guys know this, if you read a lot of film criticism and shit like this, or read film Twitter, or see what people are saying about stuff when it comes out, you really want to read against other viewers sometimes, yeah. right? So when people are saying, this is jingoist, flag-waving nonsense, this is totally empty, blah, 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 A, I legitimately didn't see that when I first saw it. B, I really wanted to push back against the idea that it was just that. And and also Clint Eastwood as a as an auteur, you know he's he's been kind of a fetish object for auteurist critics for forty years. I want to say, yeah. And he's also somebody whose reputation as a filmmaker very much has to do with the tension between the movies he stars in, which are often interpreted as very sort of fascist uh, law and order uh, screeds, like the Dirty Harry films, sure. and the movies he directs, which are more thoughtful and oftentimes have more liberalish tendencies. I mean, he's made a film about Nelson Mandela. You know, he's made a film from the, from the perspective of the Japanese in World Letter War II. Letter to Ojima, great movie. White Hunter Blackheart is, you know, very much about toxic masculinity. You know, J. Edgar is kind of the anti-Dirty Harry. Such a weird movie. So yeah. b- before before we go down the, the Clint Eastwood, I feel like we can have a more generalized conversation about about Clint Eastwood because, and I know John, you wrote an article recently, right about uh, about Eastwood. Yeah, but so I mean, it's interesting. I don't know as much about Eastwood's filmography as you guys, and but this was my first time seeing the film. I don't know. It strikes me as a pretty conservative movie. I gotta say. I mean, it's a movie that completely dehistoricizes the Iraq War. There's a scene early on where you know they watch 9/11 happening on the TV. Chris Kyle and his wife. And, you know, it's just that kind of 
everything's changed now. You know, we have mm-hmm. to, you know, stand up. And uh, his eyes are filled with vengeance. He wants to get those vengeance. And, and, and we see kind of his early, you know, the formation of his masculinity as his kind of brutish patriarchal dad, you know, teaches him to stand up to bullies and never never let your rifle touch the ground. And there's wolves and sheep and, and sheep. Yeah, down. and the and world he is pulls just... off his fucking belt and puts it on the dinner table. Yeah, and then so so Iraq had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11, right? right. But here we, here we are and we're, we're in Iraq. You know, it makes absolutely no kind of attempt to even nuance that the defense would be that chris kyle didn't either but i mean yeah. you know the, but like the, the closest it comes is that one scene where where the guy says boy i really wish i knew what we were fighting here mm. for and chris kyle goes well we're fighting here so they don't bomb new york or and, detroit yeah and the but, other guy kind of kind of looks at him like yeah not really but he does this other thing in the movie that i really responded to the first time i saw it and the third time i saw it the second time not so much but where they have this rival sniper who they call, and there's the, the other rival leader, the butcher, you know? And even the idea of thinking these terms, like, this guy's basically doing the same thing on the other side, he's the butcher, they call Kyle the legend, you know? It sort of has this Flags of Our Fathers letters to Iwo Jima split where it asks you, or maybe not forces you, but invites you to imagine a similar conflict, a similar internal ideological conflict playing out on the other side, which it never fully gets into. But I think the fact that it sort of gestures at it enough sufficiently for me at least when I watch it that I think that it is giving it a bit of depth that the movie doesn't get enough credit for the other thing is like you know you see the actual families who are trying to help them be brutalized precisely because of the American presence you know but the thing the thing where Eastwood always fudges and I don't know if it's fudging but it's the same thing with the new one 1517 to Paris there'll always be the end credits kind of post-diegetic thing where you see the real funeral the real flags and it seems like the cherry on top of these movies is always the sort of flag-waving salute yeah, type absolutely. thing. Yeah. But I mean, this is a deeper conversation, right? Is can you depict patriotism? Can you depict someone saluting a flag without it being necessarily jingoistic, militaristic, fascistic? Well, I think it's I certainly... I think so. Uh, yeah, I think so too. But I think it crosses the line in this case when we see footage from the actual funeral and we see, you know, like the a, Dallas a, Stadium. a still photo I gotta say, style. I mean, that's an interesting question from a kind of abstract film studies point of view. But just on an emotional level, like I did not need to see and was like pre- I'm pretty revolted by like you know the United States is going to keep telling itself these myths about it's going to keep mythologizing these brutal crimes that it commits abroad the Iraq war was one of, was like the disaster the crime of the 21st century so far and you know by a conservative estimate like a million people have died and you know and that and and I think the you know the Iraqis don't have a very big role in this film I mean it's true we see them being brutalized by the Americans who are going door to door and stuff but even Iraq itself is totally dehistoricized I don't really know where they are I don't know what stage of the war it is it's not even clear what this enemy they're fighting is like it's probably not Saddam Hussein's forces since they've probably been defeated by mm-hmm. that point but it's not really clear like what phase of the insurgency is this there's none of that really matters and so I don't know the film still had a kind of a binarism to it that I actually don't really disagree with these kind of questions you guys are raising about can you depict patriotism without the the text of the film itself Mm -hmm. being like pro-fascistic or pro-military I don't disagree with that but just in the case of of a film like this I mean I don't know it's just not the film I want to see about the Iraq but if I may say real quick about Eastwood artistically and this is why and in fact this is the movie that got me interested in him seriously as like an auteur filmmaker and it's really his more recent stuff that I find some of the richest material that he's done because there's always this if you want to take a binary and productively turn it into a dialectic there's always a difference between 
what he is doing and what he seems to think and feel and a way that he's beholden to expectations of his iconography or his own text. And this idea of these endings where he's, you know, saluting the troops and all this, that is almost Eastwood playing to like what he thinks people think of him. But I think a lot of things in his movies scrape uncomfortably against that iconography and that image of Eastwood as this sort of Harry Callahan law and order figure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for the most part, American Sniper does that. I mean, and this is just a historical detail, I believe. But, you know, Chris Kyle is going around with, like, Punisher logos all over his gear, you know? It reminds me of that one sketch from the Mitchell and Webb show where it's Nazis in a battle and they realize that they have skulls all over their armor. It's like, oh, well, maybe we're the baddies. Like, why would the good guys have skulls on their armor, you know? But does the fact that the movie was so well-received... The right like, loved this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, I mean, like does that sure. kind of complicate it? I don't know. I mean... <sighs> And I mean, so, some of this gets into questions that I think we're always grappling with of, you know, just because people killed other people after watching A Clockwork Orange sure, isn't sure. Stanley Kubrick's fault. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there's I think that there's something in Eastwood and this thing I wrote for The Globe about him a few weeks ago. If there's one thing I didn't like about it at the end of the day is I felt like I was kind of indulging this sort of liberal idea of like the good conservative, like the one person who we can get to limb the gap, who we can reach out to. And I'm aware that oftentimes that's a fallacy. But when I watch his movies, more often than not, I do believe that. Like I do believe that he's a person who has a sort of fundamental concern with pre-ideological notions that often just manifest as like libertarian propaganda maybe. But that if you can't believe that there's some way to limb the difference between people who think like that, people who are further right, people who are further left, then what's the fucking point? We should all just retreat to our hovels. And I feel like Clint Eastwood has the opportunity, and I feel like a lot of people who are politically more left-wing who think of him as an auteur object, I think they're interested in this idea as positioning him as a sort of hand-across-the-aisle figure. Well, can I ask you, in the article, you put Clint Eastwood a little more in the lineage of people like John Ford and mm -hmm. Howard Hawks as being sort of, for, for want of a better term, great conservative artists, as opposed to, you know, the Zack Snyders and Michael Bays. And you say it's because he comes by his politics honestly. What exactly, aside from, I guess, basic aesthetics, differentiates that tradition from the Michael Bay, Zack Snyder? And, and why is coming upon politics honestly why does good. it matter yeah, yeah. i yeah. mean that's a good question but I, th I think the difference to me is the problem with the idea of conservative artistry right is okay think of someone like ayn rand those books are unreadable and those yeah, books have really no artistic literary merit they are just tracks and conservative art i mean liberal art does this too progressive art does this too they have a tendency to just express themselves as like mouthpieces who are espousing their ideology and i don't think that eastwood's movies do that and again, I had this line in the thing where I don't think art—I don't think art is about ideology or even about ideas. Art is about the expression of an ideology or an idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that if—I mean, you said to preclude craft or whatever from the discussion, but I think that he is able to express these sort of basic, fundamental. American ideas of uh, self-reliance and the Jeffersonian family farm and the man standing alone against the harsh backdrop in a way that makes him seem appealing not in a seductive way but in a way that's sort of universal or that people can understand uh, and that don't seem mean-spirited like he doesn't seem like he 
hates other people or that he wants other people to suffer. You know, it's obviously easy for a super rich guy who's the mayor of his own town mm -hmm. to be a libertarian. Well, he also, as an artist, has a great deal of curiosity. I mean, for sure. I mean you, wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't make a film about World War II and then say, hey, why don't I also make a movie about the Japanese side if you weren't Or curious. hereafter. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is a guy who is like on the books as being an atheist, right? And like he does this film that's like all about the exploration of God through these different characters' perspectives. Like, I don't know, I think I think that there's like a, a faintly thumping heart behind his well, eyes. Well, I, I also don't think he's an intellectual. No, uh, well, that's why I compared him to Ford I mean, and Hawks, right? And I think he's not a particularly um, coherent thinker. I mean, all you have to do is look at his uh, fucking awful Republican National Convention speech. Sure. Where there's that one point in the speech where when he's talking to the Obama chair and he says something like, ah, uh, so you're, you're flying that gas guzzler plane. <laughs> so he's literally criticizing Obama on environmental grounds <laughs> yeah. at the Republican National Convention. There's not a whole lot he really, truly, like, firmly knows he believes, except for some, like, fiscal conservatism. Yeah, and I mean, to, to talk about that generosity that you mentioned, I mean, that incoherence is often the result of that, right? Of, like, not having a firmly staked out ground. And the other thing about that makes him a sort of classical auteur in the Hawks for tradition is... There's this idea that he's expressing these things almost despite himself in a lot mm -hmm. of cases. Uh, and, you know, you imagine like John Ford, like I would dream of interviewing Clint Eastwood about his movies. But I imagine if I were to put to him a question that I wanted to know, he'd be like, no, I don't know. I, I mean, I've seen enough good. interviews with him to know that he's absolutely inarticulate. Yeah, yeah. Or I'll just start talking about like Generation Pussy or whatever. I guess one thing I'm worried about in talking about this is maybe it is getting a little bit too much into this like film studies sure. stuff when, I mean, this is a movie that depicts so many Arab people die. Yeah, it's a volatile cultural commodity. Yeah. I think we just have to come back to the fact that the, you know, conservative like cultural class absolutely ate this movie up. They loved it. When a film like this plays such a role in kind of the myth making around like a an actual event, I think it can be hard to extricate you know, you're making a very good, like, aesthetic case for the the film and its different layers, but to me it's hard to to kind of extricate that from its well, the lived fact that, existence yeah, as a Kyle cultural commodity. Chris Kyle is such a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that too. Um, and I mean, on this viewing, I thought the movie was a little bit... I, I, I always thought the movie whitewashed Chris Kyle a bit. In this one, I mean, we see him calling the Iraqis savages. Mm. So there's evil here that yeah. we have to root out. Yeah, mm. I, I think a lot of the controversy around the depiction of Chris Kyle in this movie really came down to that one scene where he's looking at the little Iraqi child who's thinking about picking up the bomb and he's going, don't pick up the bomb, don't pick up the bomb. Mm. That seems to be the one scene because aside from that apparently Chris Kyle had no qualms about, you know, well, there, killing there, people. There's also a sense in that scene when you watch it, like had the kid, I think it was a rocket launcher, but if he would have picked it up, there's no doubt he would have shot the kid. Yeah. Like he's so relieved, the character is so relieved that he doesn't have but, to. But the film's detractors would say that, you know, by all indication, the real the Kyle wouldn't, wouldn't have, have batted an eye. Yeah. But then, I mean, there are also some, some indications that the movie is sort of looking at Chris Kyle from the out, like the scene when he's talking to the therapist at the end. Right. And the therapist saying, are you sure you don't have PSD? PTSD? Yeah. Or your blood pressure's 170 over 140. He's like, okay, that's fine. I'm driving home. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I, the movie did, I, I mean, this movie more than anything, despite all that, solidified Chris Kyle as a hero of the right. But yeah, I and mean, for that, that, Clint Eastwood will have to answer to his maker. Who he doesn't believe. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I mean, to that, I can only say, I mean, I, I get this and like, certainly in the course of my daily life, I would like never want to defend something that like gives more ammunition to like the 
Republicans or the far right wing or something like that. But I guess I wish they could have seen it for what it is and not what they want it to be. Like, that's mm -hmm. why people. So we paused there for a bit because there was a horn honking outside and we wanted to crack open some cold ones in memory of uh, the great Chris Kyle. Uh, cheers. cheers to that. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I believe I was saying that I wish that the people who love this movie could love it for what it's actually doing and not for what they want it to do, which is always going to be a problem of art that flirts in any way with politics. I don't think that people taking it up for the wrong reasons should invalidate someone's desire to want to flirt with or engage with politics. Do you think, can you think of another example of a film, the same thing could be said for that you think kind of, um, actually is, is fine and textured as a standalone, but as a, as a cultural commodity has kind of been misappropriated. Uh, it's, a clockwork orange in certain contexts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how much you like fight club, but that could be an example if you like it. Mm. Sure. Yeah. And I, or to think of, of a counter example, like, like Zack Snyder is a great a great example of a, great a, 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 of a bad of a bad trend, which is like I think the defining image of like Obama era cinema to me is Superman snapping General Zod's neck while shedding a tear because like this is the American ideology at that period, right? Yeah. That you have to do violence. There's no way around but you, it. But you have but to be sad as about it. As long as you feel sad about it, then that's okay. And the difference is there's no daylight between what Zack Snyder thinks and what people make of his films they're totally coherent yeah, and legible in that way yeah. and their legibility spells out something that is fucking stupid mm -hmm. uh, so when I see stuff like that and like those being the sort of raw raw movies I mean Snyder has a lot of like hard right fans for good reason because his films are fucking Randian power fantasies mm -hmm. you know so I know that it's not exactly a controversial well, statement to say that Clint Eastwood is a better filmmaker than Zack Snyder well listen we don't like to get political on here but I will just say release the Snyder cut <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Are you Chief Chris Kyle? Yes, sir. My name is Mads. Um, we met in Fallujah. You saved my life. I did? Yes, sir. We were stuck in a house until you came in with First Marines. You were the one that carried me out. Oh, my. Well, Marines saved our ass plenty of times. Uh, how are you? You all right? You holding up? Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to be alive. It hasn't been... Cool. It hasn't been easy. Well, you know, a lot of guys lost more than just a leg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You lose some friends? Well, that too, but I'm talking about the guys that lived. You know, they made it back, but they're just not, they're just not back. You know, they can't seem to get right. Yeah. So Luke's been uh, itching to talk about patron saint of the podcast, uh, Elon Musk. Friend of the show. I saw the roadster just go by. That was the <laughs> horn that was honking earlier. It was uh, the SpaceX space roadster. So I don't know. It's like we were talking about earlier about how people get very, you know, attached to these public intellectuals or, you know, uh, maybe billionaires too. Um, because every time I'm even a little bit snarky about Elon Musk, people got really mad when... Like, Elon Musk has started just doing, like, normie Twitter humor, like, around all this bullshit with the flamethrowers, where he changed his bio to, like, zombie killer or something. <laughs> Bacon and enthusiast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fluent in sarcasm. Yeah, exactly. God damn. Yeah, uh, <laughs> wide-eyed pragmatist. Oh, yeah, no, that kind of thing. He's doing that kind of shit, and it's like, you know, it's this billionaire who's, like, cute on Twitter, and doesn't let his workers unionize <laughs> and and like instead gives them like fucking pinball machines and stuff and it's like 
there was so yesterday, you know, was you know more Musk mania because SpaceX did this launch and uh, they launched Elon Musk's two hundred thousand dollar Tesla car into space. So essentially, some people are watching this and they're like, "Wow, like one giant leap forward," you know, <laughs> for the for the species. And I'm watching. It's like this is like an expensive car commercial in space that you are all like promoting. Or Elon Musk's flamethrower thing was picked up by like. Bloomberg, all these papers just reported on Elon Musk is selling these flame flamethrowers, and it's just like we're all being just duped into by by what is essentially just like corporate PR that's clever, and not even that clever. It's just like one percent cleverer than regular corporate PR, and because Elon Elon Musk, it seems like his skill. By the way, this segment's called "You Know What Really Grinds My Gears." Um, his skill is that he understands that there's this almost mythical archetype that sort of comes out of like the Enlightenment and, like, Galileo and, you know, the curator of the future, the... the Xanadu did Kubla Khan <laughs> escape the pressure dome? You know, <laughs> you know the, the, it's very it's roman- very romantic notion, and you've seen it in the past with figures like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Um, you know, the, these people who basically privatize gains, uh, you know, that are enabled by, you know, public sector research and stuff like that. And, and I don't know... It just seems like Elon Musk has figured out how to how to market himself, but I don't know if he's actually like invented anything that's genuinely useful. Well, this is a thing like Bill Gates is a fucking loser. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, he's trying to reinvent himself, but he's like a fucking lizard-eyed sociopath. You know, <laughs> like there's no charisma to them. Like Elon Musk has like managed to find this way around it. I mean, this is a thing that drives he's, he's, he's like, like that Albert Brooks character on The Simpsons, the uh, Hank Scorpio. Right, exactly. Yeah. I didn't give you my coat. But he's he's more real than Zuckerberg. I mean, if you see him, like he, Werner Herzog puts him in Lo and Behold, right at the end, and I mean, he he he. I think he pretty successfully kind of conveys like this character that he's trying to put across is like this guy who's, you know, he's like the solemn inventor who just is care, you know, cares about the future and is trying to, we're going to innovate our way out of poverty and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, if space exploration does become possible, I mean, there's a really good Jacobin article from a few years back. It's one of my favorite uh, Jacobin essays ever, but it's called democratize the universe. I mean, it's, you know, it's speculative, but it points out that, there is enough like iron ore and you know various precious metals in like one asteroid that essentially just harvest harvesting it mining it would trigger like a new industrial revolution so in the next you know 50 or 100 years that is if we don't you know if nuclear war environmental degradation uh, don't don't get us first <laughs> i mean it's it's actually going to be a genuine question i mean and it's going to be like, who gains from this and if that if the process by which you know, we get to get get there is driven by, you know, these private sector interests. Uh, you know, it, it, it is going to be like, who's that guy that made like District 9 and Elysium? Neil it's going to be like Elysium. It's yeah. going to be, we're going to have a, you know. Well, this is literally the plot of the Blade Runner movies, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want neoliberalism to go intergalactic. I like Elon Musk because I've given up hope on uh, a habitable <laughs> Earth. That's uh, the same reason I've invested in Bitcoin because <laughs> b- because the actual economy seems too complicated. I'm investing in cannabis, <laughs> the last crop and commodity that will ever be grown on planet Earth. Maybe it's just my own sort of uh, 
pleasant bubble or whatever, but it was nice to see during all the SpaceX stuff that that news story was totally overshadowed in my world by uh, news that Marlon Brando fucked James Baldwin. Oh, yeah. That was the world historic James, event. James, James Baldwin and Richard, Richard Pryor, Pryor and, and a Marvel mailbox Gay. and Marvel Gay and a mailbox. Well, no, no. Quincy, Quincy Jones said he would fuck right. a mailbox. And then Richard Pryor's wife, Widow, had the great lines like, this is back in the day we do so much coke that you'd fuck a radiator and send it flowers <laughs> in the morning. So a world historic day, I guess, for different reasons. So uh, until next week, the balcony is closed. Uh, <laughs> my name was Will Sloan. I'm Luke Savage. And I'm John Semley. Thanks again. Now watch this drive. So tenderly, your story is nothing more than what you see or what you've done or will become. Standing strong, do you belong in your skin? Just wondering. Gentle now, the tender breeze blows, whispers through my grand Torino, whistling another tired song. Engine numbed and bitter dreams grow, heart locked in the grand Torino. It beats a lonely rhythm all night long. It beats a lonely rhythm all night long. It was nice to see the uh, 1517 to Paris. It was like watching the Dow Jones in reverse. Like this morning it was at 12%, went down to 10, then slowly climbed up to 22. Oh yeah, so... uh... This is actually perhaps pertinent to the podcast. Um, John saw the new Clint film opening this week, and uh, you gave it uh, four stars. Four out of four stars, yeah. I mean... Uh, it's the it's the whipping boy of most of the critical community. I mean, again, I wish that... Uh, I wish... It, and this is going to sound... Again, I don't want to do the thing where I'm uh, reading other critics and not the film itself, but when I watch this film and when I've read other people's reviews, like Owen Gleiberman's review had this thing where it's like, because if you don't know about 1517 to Paris, it's about the 2015 attack on a Thales train from Amsterdam to Paris, where these three Americans and a French guy and a British guy who are barely figured basically take down this attacker on a train and they get, as the promotional material says, the real heroes to play themselves in the movie, uh, which is not without precedent. But like Owen Gleiberman's review and I think Variety said, these people are never convincing. They seem like shards of reality trapped in a movie. And I'm like, if I were to read that on a poster, I would stop what I'm doing and go buy a ticket. I mean, I don't understand how, you know, this desire to want to experiment, to want to create a new form of docudrama that essentially tries to collapse history into narrative fiction, almost as a response to the criticisms of something like American Sniper, I think. I don't understand how people cannot be interested in that, especially from an 87-year-old filmmaker. Like, this is a guy who could easily cash in as if he needs to cash in anymore, doing the same shit that he would be doing all the time. These guys have come up with a movie every year, and it's just kind of like a marker of time. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I thought... 1517 was legitimately very interesting. I got a lot of like uh, Engels quotes cut out of my first uh, draft of my <laughs> review, but probably for the better. I, I was impressed to hear that apparently so much of the movie is just these quotidian scenes of the soldiers just hanging out. And like Clint Eastwood shooting like an Amsterdam club night and stuff like this. Like that, that seems like absolute, you know, late style, mm-hmm. you know, like Clint's answer to Monet's water lilies, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Beats a lonely rhythm all night
It's the only rhythm all night long. Beats a lonely rhythm all night.